Hey, good morning. Come on. Yeah, good morning. Hey, I want you to do something else for me, though. I want you to do this. I want you to, in a minute, stand up and greet those around you so you can get to know who you're listening with and worshiping with today. But here's the question of the morning. See if you can predict what the score of today's game is between the Chargers, okay? Because we're not really thinking about that, but you might as well get that out of your system, all right? Because here's the deal. I'm going to offer 20 bucks on a bet in just a minute. So stand up and greet those around you, okay? All right. All right, okay, okay. All right, now here's the deal. Are you going to be seated? All right, enough talk about the game, okay? Here's the deal. See, I've been really thinking and asking for insight on this game. So here's the deal. I bet you 20 bucks today that I can tell you the score of the game before it even starts. Now, if you want to take me up on my bet, I can only afford to risk 10 of you maybe. So who who wants in on this? Who wants in? No, no one has the courage to come in with me on this thing? There's one. Mary, stand up. Stand up. Anyone? I need to identify the ten. You are up. Anybody else? Anybody else? I've got three. I've got four over here. Anybody else? Up. Five over here. Stand up. Any more? I need a few more. I want to make more money on this. Six is up. Seven is up. Eight is up. Only ten. One more. Ten is up. Stand up. All right. Here's the deal. The score. I didn't say the finished score. I said the score of the game before it even begins. It's going to be it's going to be zero zero. The score is going to be zero to zero, right? Okay. So I want to see two hundred dollars show up in my pocket after the game. All right. Now, out of a spirit of grace, I want to release you from your obligation. Isn't that nice of me? Isn't that nice of me? I got hooked into that one time. I got hooked into that bet one time on a game. And I never forgot that. It's a great little tool to use. But let me tell you why I'm bringing that up. This actually relates to the sermon. Can you believe that? It really does. We're going to see why in a minute. Father God, teach us from your word. Teach us that uh, as much as we need to be strong in you, because it's Christ who provides the strength by which we live. We know that. We teach that. We believe that. But Father, sometimes being strong is not enough. We need to also be wise. So teach us about not just being strong, but being wise. In Christ's name, amen. Now, those of you that made that bet with me, uh, right now, you're kind of saying, you what? Tricked us. Some of you are also thinking, if I actually required you to show up with the 20 after the service, you'd probably say, okay, Dale, here's my 20, but that wasn't fair. So you know these phrases. You tricked us. That wasn't fair. You didn't tell us. You didn't give us the whole story. And the reality is sometimes life is just like that. Sometimes in a little game like I just played with you, it's not a big deal. Maybe you risk 20 bucks or maybe we should have upped the ante. I should have had a little more courage and laid a hundred dollar bill up. But then I knew that you wouldn't, you wouldn't pony up. So the reality is, the reality is sometimes in life, we just think we need to be strong. But other times, our enemy doesn't really attack us through strength, but through trickery. And you don't battle trickery with strength. You battle it 
with wisdom. And you need both. I'm a big football fan. You know that. Uh, it's playoff time. San Diego's pumped up. Today at 1 p.m., our Chargers will go in to defeat Denver. Amen? Yeah, and that's not a prophecy. I don't have the gift of prophecy, so anyway. But, you know, they're going to face a guy named Peyton Manning, who's one of the best QBs in the game. And one of the reasons they say Peyton Manning excels above other quarterbacks is not just his arm strength, it's not just his accuracy, it's that he is a master at reading defenses. He's learned over the years that when the defense aligns themselves to stop the play that he's about to run when he goes under center or into the shotgun, that when he looks at that defense, he sees things that are clues to him. Subtle little things that, you know, they're lined up this way, but they're really going to do something different. It's one of the reasons I love football. I really believe, I thought about that this week, that football is one of the few times in life in which it's okay to lie. It's okay to deceive. It's okay to, to act one way and be something different than what you pretend to be. In fact, the game is built on it. There is no other sport. A lot of sports, it's all about strength, speed, athleticism. You line up, you line up, for example, okay, the Olympics are coming. I mean, the skiers on those downhill runs, they're going to all go out of the gate. It's required that they all get the same warning, the same little beep, 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 countdown. Then they come out of the chute. Then they shoot down the hill. they got to run the exact same course, hopefully under the same conditions. Best score, best or lowest speed wins, right? Best speed, lowest time wins. You line up in most games, it's you against your opponent, and it's whoever's the quickest, best, strongest wins. It's not that way in football. Strength matters, and that's why that these teams spend a lot of time and money getting in great shape for the competition. But then as game time approaches, to be honest, they aren't lifting weights. They aren't running wind sprints. They're not training their bodies to get in better shape at this point in the season. But what they are doing is they are studying film of the enemy. They're studying film of the opponent. They want to see what their tendencies are. They don't want to see how, when they line up this way, how can you tell whether or not that linebacker is going to do what he looks like he's going to do? Because it is a game that will be won or lost today largely on who can best disguise what they're doing. It's a game of deception, a very complex game. If you ever really have ever played it or get to know it, you'll understand that. It's all about, they use words like the quarterback takes the ball and he turns, and what does he do if he doesn't give the linebacker, I mean, the running back the ball? It says he what? He fakes a handoff. Well, why, why waste your time faking a handoff if you're going to throw the ball, you know? Why not just come up and say, all right, guys, here's the deal. No need to huddle up. We don't really care if they know because we're stronger than them. So here's the deal. I'm going to, on, on, on the third count, not the second, but the third count, huh, huh, on the third, huh, and then I want you to snap the ball. And when you snap the ball, everybody, then I'm going to hand to this guy who's bigger and stronger than you, and we're going to block you and run over you at right tackle. Now, do they ever do that? Of course not. Because instead, it's all about deception. And I think if you're talking about sports, that's one thing. But when you're talking about life, the stakes are much higher. So we actually live in a world that we're going to study today. We're going to see it in, in Joshua chapter 9. So if you're not already there, get there with me in the book. Joshua 9, we're going to see a story in which Israel loses without even going into a battle. Because they don't get whipped. They don't get outmanned. 
they get tricked. Not whipped, but tricked. That's the title of the morning. And the reality is we live in a world and a culture that practices the art of deception. Like a masterful offensive-defensive coordinator, our culture absolutely is built to deceive. Now you may say, Dale, you are a really negative, skeptical kind of guy, aren't you? I say, no, I want to show you in the Word of God where we are warned that that's the case. So are you ready to learn to live life in a world that lies to you? That's the question. That's the question. Let's look at it. Look at this story first. I love this story. Israel's new enemy, I call it the gentle giant of deception because they're not coming in with their power game. They're coming in with trickery. Here we go. Now, what's the context? Let me set the context for you. The gentle giant of deception. The setting is Israel is on a roll. You see it in the first two verses. Now it came about that when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland uh, and, and in all the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Parasite, the Hevite, the Jebusite. I love that list. Always got added. The termites, all of them. All the mites are there. They heard of it. When they heard of the victory over Ai, they heard the victory over Jericho, they heard of the crossing of the Jordan River. When they heard of these victories, it says they gathered together, verse 2, themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and with Israel. In fact, in Hebrew, the word one accord could be translated with one mouth. Okay, they, they have a united voice, a united message. We are uniting against them. Now, you've got to understand, these are dire enemies of each other. All of these various ites in the region are different. Uh, think of them more as city-states, but they're different, they're different, or they're different city-states that had spent a lot of years learning to hate and oppose each other and doing war against each other. And now they say, okay, look, whatever is going on here, Israel is too strong for any one of us. So they say, we are going to unite and bring strength against them. And we will study how God deals with that next week. So that's a great passage. Don't miss it. But then what's left out is in verse 3, because the reality is there is a new foe against Israel, one that's not mentioned until verse 3. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Josh, heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they also acted, but in their case, underline it, they acted craft, craftily and they set out as envoys and they took worn out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins that were worn out and torn and mended several times. They, they grabbed worn out patched sandals to put on their feet worn out clothes on themselves, and all the bread that was in their provision was dry and had become crumbled. And actually, the Hebrew word for crumbled there uh, could be spotted or speckled. In other words, it is what? Moldy. So they even get dried out moldy bread to prove what? And they went to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, and they said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us, a treaty type thing. Make a covenant with us. And the men of Israel said to the Hevites, which they were a part of, perhaps you are still living within our land. How then shall we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, we are your servants. Then Joshua said to them, who are you? Where do you come from? He's skeptical. He says, and they said to him, look, your servants have come from a very far country because 
of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt. So they, you know, they're backing it up to the story of when Moses led him out of Egypt. And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan on the, on the east side of the Jordan River, and to Shion, the king of Hezbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, and, 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 you know, who was at Ashtaroth. So our elders and our inhabitants of our country spoke with us, saying, Take provision in your hand for a far journey, you know, for the journey, and go and meet them and say, We are your servants, now then make a covenant with us. What's the evidence? Because our bread was warm when we took it out of the oven for our provision out of our houses on the day that we left to come to you. And now, behold, it's dried out and it's become speckled and crumbled. These wineskins, which were new, now they're torn and our clothes and our sandals, look at our sandals, they're wore out because of the very long journey. You see, what they did was they cast themselves, they pulled off what we called in my outline the masquerade of the of the book of of uh, joshua where they are fooled joshua is fooled by the enemy in thinking that the gibeonites are from a way distant country now the reality is i check with my local hebrew scholar on this thing that the, the reality is gibeon was only about 15 miles down the road. And, it, and it's the area directly west. As they cross the Jordan River, they're headed from east to west in their conquest. First they bump into Jericho. Then they bump into Ai. Now about 15 more miles. Or picture the distance from here to about UT uh, Town Center. Okay? So, you know, just, just, just right down the freeway. They're about 15 miles away. But they, but they pull off this masquerade as if they've on this long journey. And they say, so we're a, we're a, we're a, we're a, we're a, we're a country, you know, we're a people that are outside of your borders. We don't want to fight with you, but we want to have an allegiance. We want to sign a deal that says you'll protect us, we'll protect you, you know, and, 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 and we'll both be safer and stronger for all of that. So Israel makes a mistake. It's in verses 14 and 15. What was their mistake? Because I think it's two common ones that we can learn from today. It says, So then Israel, the men of Israel, took some of their provisions and did not ask. In other words, they examined the provisions to see if it rang true. And they did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. Underline that. They did not ask for God's input. They did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. Joshua made a peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them it means they swore an oath to them. Usually it means, you know, we swear that, you know, and usually the language of an oath would be, you know, if we break this deal, may our God not be kind to us. I mean, they, they would often swear on their God that they would fulfill this. So they sign a covenant with them. What are the two mistakes? Here here they are. They're spelled out in Scripture. Just learn the Word of God. Number one, they trusted their own judgment without seeking God's. They said, you know something? This just rings true to me. This sounds like it makes sense. All the evidence seems to support this. That's mistake number one. Number two, they trusted their own deal instead of their own God. In other words, they felt like, okay, every time we sign a covenant with another nation, uh, you know, then, then we are stronger. 
And, and, and so they were relying upon their, their deals with their surrounding neighbors uh, for their strength. Now you say now, okay, Dale, but I mean, wouldn't you expect them to do this? You know, I mean, uh, they got tricked. It's not fair. I mean, you can, you can say all of that. They got tricked. It's not fair, but they didn't tell us the truth. You know, and, and the reality is that happens to you and me in life. You know, where, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I didn't, I didn't realize I, they didn't tell me the whole truth or I got tricked. I got tricked. So the consequences, which I'm not going to take time to read in detail, are quite painful. The painful consequences that flow out of this is that it's a deal gone bad. Because as you read the rest of the story from verse 16 to 27, here's what comes down. Basically on Israel, they're unable to remove them to the land and kill them uh, you know, because uh, they said, you know something, when we take an oath before God and we, and we sign a covenant and God expects, expects us to honor it, and, and we have to honor this, even though they were tricked, they still felt they needed to honor the covenant they had made in the presence of their God. Later on in the chapter, you see what happens. Uh, later on in the chapter, the, in fact, in the, next, in, the next, in the next chapter we'll study next week, what comes down next is this big, powerful alliance. Here's about the deal. So what do you think they do? Do they attack Israel? Do they attack the Gibeonites? Answer? You're going to see it next week. The Gibeonites. Say, say that. Gibeonites. Yeah. Okay. So you're going to, you're going to attack the, the weaker Gibeonites, not Israel. So the alliance is going to come against Gibeon. And guess who's got to pony up to protect them? Israel. So Israel has to put their life on the line to protect the people who had tricked them into this treaty. And, you know, and, and the reality is... Uh, they would suffer later also from the painful pagan influences of this people on their faith. Later on in the history of Israel, we will see times in which the nation, when they allowed other pagan gods to still be worshipped in their midst, when they allowed themselves to, to live amongst other people who believed in other gods, and, and you know, that, that that affected them and would draw them away from God and lead to tremendous pain and suffering and death as a result of that. You see, one of the things I want to pause for just a minute, I don't have time to go into a lot of depth on this, is this. Some of you, as we're going through the Joshua series, because I know because in my life group I meet with some men on Thursday mornings, and they've asked me questions. They've said, Dale, you know, when are you going to talk about the fact that this feels out of character with God? I mean, this is God saying, hey, we, I want... I want you as my people to go in and you need to fight. And if they don't leave and give you the land, then you need to kill them. Okay, because we need to we need to remove all of the people from the land. And, and no, you, you're not going to live and and co-inhabit the land with them. Okay, you they need to go. Now, this was a brutal part of the scriptures. It's a part of the scriptures that most of us, can I put myself in this category, when I read it, I, I would tend to say, oh God, you know, could you maybe just do a miracle and like, woohoo, transport them out to some other paradise, give them a nice place to live, you know, and, and, and give your people the land. And that'd be a cool miracle, it'd make, it'd make big headlines, and it'd be a great story to preach years later for Dale. Instead of, sometimes God did things that, to me, seemed brutal. Um, 
Maybe God was being too harsh. The reality is, God doesn't always do what I would expect him to do. If you haven't figured that out yet in your faith, then I really encourage you to deal with it as we go through Joshua. And here's why. I believe that the simple answer is God is God, knows everything, rules everything. The earth and all that is in it belongs to him. And he has a right to do with it whatever he wishes. He's also a tremendous loving God. We're going to see that. In fact, we're going to see that even this was designed to be an act of love. Uh, when, he, when he gives this land to Israel, he has a purpose for it that goes you know, way beyond this story. And, and, and that God is wiser than me. So when, when your view of God begins to always agree with your thinking, you should be fearful of that God or that religion or that faith. Because that means you've just lowered God to, to your human level. And I really don't want a God that agrees with Dale all the time. Because I know sometimes Dale is what? Yes, I hurt to hear you say that. Yeah, sometimes Dale is wrong. Let me rephrase that. I know sometimes you are what? Wrong, yeah. So the reality is I don't want a God that agrees with me all the time. I don't want a God that makes it easy for me I want a God who tells me the truth because I want a God who deals with truth, not deception. And that's at the heart of this story. So you need to realize that this war that's going on is not an ordinary war. This is not like, in fact, there's nothing in Scripture that would say, this is the way I want my people to behave. I want you to go where you want to be in control and wage war and knock them out. Nowhere else in Scripture does God ever use this. This was a, a one-time-in-the-history-of-humanity type of, a, of an event in which God is taking His people to build a nation that could model for the rest of the world what truth is about and what life is about and what the real true God is about. And, and, and He would do miracles through His people that would get His Word out to the world and ultimately provide a Messiah a Savior who is Christ the Lord to come to bring blessing and life to the entire world. So that's what's at stake. So you've got to realize this is not God's normal practice. Now, by the way, if you study Islam, they teach that in order to spread the faith, it's okay to use violence. Maybe you don't hear that, but that is part of the Koran. You won't find that in Scripture. So talk to me later in the plaza if you want to interact on this a little bit. But I wanted to just touch on that a little bit because you need to realize that what God is dealing with, God had commanded them. The passage is Exodus 23.32, if you want to write it down. Exodus 23.32, he says this. He says, when you go into the land, you shall make no treaties. Don't make treaties with them because you shall not let them live among you because... They will cause you to sin against me and bring great pain and suffering on everyone. So God knew he needed an environment in which he could build his people Israel, teach them truth, deliver the truth to them, and through them deliver a Messiah, a Savior to us, and literally go to save the world. So this, this campaign in Joshua is a campaign driven by the love of God for all of humanity of all time. Do you get that? This is not just a little skirmish. This is history being reshaped. And it did involve 
the elimination of some peoples from the land. But God looks at this from an eternal global perspective. We look at it as just one little story in the Bible. You've got to get the big view to understand why God does what he does. That's, that's my point. And it's not God's norm. In fact, we see clearly taught in Scripture. You know, Jesus comes, and even before Jesus comes, we see Israel is actually taught. Once they occupy the land, there's, there's rules for how they're supposed to love strangers that come among them and, and how to, they're supposed to care for them and let them glean in the fields if they're in poverty. And there's a lot of various uh, emphases on the compassion and the love of God in the Old Testament as well as the New. But this is a very unique moment in history where God is doing something very, very unique. So I wanted to pause on that because I think you're a thinking congregation and I I figure you're asking yourself those questions. So why did God leave us this story? You know, because one of the things I love about teaching in the Old Testament, you know, some, some churches do very little Old Testament teaching. It's because this. There's a passage that I love where it says, for all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for training us in righteousness, that we might be equipped for every good deed. In other words, every story in the Bible, I believe, has relevance to us as we walk with Christ under His grace today. But there's lessons that we need to learn. What's the big lesson being taught in today's passage? It's this. Our enemy is a master of deceit. If you catch that, you've caught the big message of the morning. Now, what's the implications of that? And and where do we come up with that? Or is this just something that happened one time in history? All right. Here's four quick observations. Number one, we should wake up and expect our culture that we live and breathe in to not tell us the truth. Now, it doesn't mean our culture constantly lies to us. It doesn't mean the culture never tells us anything that's true. Sure, the culture sometimes discovers elements of truth, and that's okay. But what it does, but the, but the culture by nature is a culture of deception. And here's why. There is good and there is evil in this world. Evil is described in scripture as headed up by a guy named who? Satan. Here's how Jesus describes Satan to us. Here it is, John 8, I'll put it on the screen. John 8, 44. He says, he's referring to these um, religious leaders who are teaching a false religion. And here's what he says. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He, i.e. the devil, does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So he says the evil one is not just a liar himself. And we see this in Genesis chapter 3 when he tempts Adam and Eve, right? You know, they say, hey, you know, why are you not eating of the fruit? You know, and and he says, oh, you can eat that fruit. Yeah, but God says if we eat that fruit, we will certainly die. And he says, you will certainly not die. First lie in the Bible comes from the evil one to Adam and Eve. And every temptation almost since then, at least a lot of them, are rooted in lies and deceptions. And he says, it's kind of his nature. He is a liar, therefore he lies. (laughs) Okay, okay, and that's the reality. And he says, and he's the father of lies. In other words, he generates lies, he gives birth to lies in the culture that he influences. 
So we need to really kind of wake up and quit being so naive because our assumption that we're taught growing up in school today is this, because I was taught it coming through the university system, is that man by nature is good, and as and, and, and what screws man up is the culture. So culture and even religion screws man up, but by nature, if we would quit messing with him, people would just grow up to be nice and loving and tell the truth. And, you know, and that's the way, because all of us are so good. Now, the reality is, the Bible teaches us, you know, it says, you know, haste to break the truth to us, but the truth is, people don't come out of the womb naturally inclined to be good. I currently have a grandchild, and he is the absolute cutest, except for all of you who think you have one cuter. But, okay, except for some of the Seacoast babies. He is... He is ultimate cute, okay? And, and he's right now, you know, he's, he's between that, he's around two. So he is walking and starting to talk. He spent the night at my home yesterday. I cannot tell you how many times he used one word. You know what it was? Well, it wasn't no, because Grandpa doesn't tell him not to do anything. <laughs> I'm not the parent, okay? I'm feeding him corn dogs, okay? I don't care about, you know, so... <laughs> You know, that's what grandparents do. You need to learn that, okay? You got to look. But, but what, uh, he doesn't say no so much, but he says what? My, mine. Mine. And everything seems to be his. If he sees it, it's his. If he wants it, it's his. If you want it, it's his. You know, I mean, it's mine, mine. Mine. You can't even say the whole mind, but you know, you can hear, you know, boom, boom, boom. So the reality is, you know, kind of the selfishness of humanity, you know, it comes out very, very early. You know, the reality is by nature we are sinful and we live apart from Christ in that nature. It doesn't mean that you never do anything that's kind, but it means that you are, the phrase is that our culture experiences what the theologians call total depravity. That is, our, our depraved or sinful nature is something that affects everyone. It affects the way we act, the way we think. It's part of our nature. That's why Jesus came to die on the cross for us, rose from the dead to help Number one, forgive us of our sins, but then also help us to be changed. Help us to be transformed, to be more like Christ and to be people of truth, not people of, of deception. So I think it's important first, if you learn nothing else from today, well, we got to wake up and realize I need to be a very critical listener. I need to be filtering everything that I'm learning from the culture, all of its things, especially when it begins to talk to me about what is right and what is wrong? What is sin and what is not? Because when mankind begins to deal with those issues, then the heart of man will always look for evidence to support sinful choices. It's the world you live in. Number two. So secondly, wise up and understand it. Wake up and begin to expect deception in the culture so you're not blindsided by it. You know, a good offense that knows the defense is trying to trick them, then what do they do? They can, they can plan for that. Okay, number two, wise up and understand it. Wise up and understand it. The best descriptions or the best deceptions are built on partial truths. 
Uh, if I'm going to, for example, I hooked at least 10 of you into a $20 bet, right? See, what fooled you was I didn't say, I'm going to tell you the final score of the game when the game is over. Or else all of you would have taken that bet. See, I left out one little word, final. I'll tell you the score of the game before it even begins. I didn't say final score. By leaving out one little important word, I, I spoke a lot of truth, but I mixed in enough deception to hook you. Theologically and in life, that's how the evil one works. Almost every false religion has a lot of good, truthful things mixed into it with a few dangerous deceptions. Realize that. What are some of the most common deceptions that have partial truth in our, in our Christian world even? How about, let me give you a couple one. God wants you to be happy. True or false? See, you don't even know how to answer it. You're afraid to answer now, okay? Well, I would say that's true. I think God wants you to be happy, but God doesn't just want you to be happy. God knows that true happiness is really found in holiness, and God has a bigger plan for your life than just your happiness. So I think God probably votes for happy instead of, you know, grieving. You know, God doesn't like pain and suffering, but yet God knows that it's part of life and he allows it and he has purposes for it. And, you know, so you got to be careful making decisions just on, you know, I mean, I had one guy walk in my office one day and said, Dale, I just want to tell you before you hear it from anybody else, I'm leaving my wife. And he had a wife who was a pretty good gal, you know, but he wasn't happy. She was faithful to him. And in fact, I knew her well enough. She was, she'd be very happy to go get counseling and work on their relationship or anything else. But the reality is he said, you know, some, I'm not happy. I haven't been happy for a long time. I've talked to God and God says it's okay for me to leave my family because he wants me to be happy. Now, I, you know, we had an interesting conversation after that. But that's a common thing. How about this one? God's grace will always forgive me. True or false? See, you're so afraid to answer my questions. I'd say true. That if you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, God's grace is inexhaustible. He can forgive. I don't think there's anything you can do that would say, well, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm out of grace. I think God's grace is inexhaustible. But do you then say, therefore, I'll move in with my spouse before we're married or my future spouse. I will, um, you know, because I want to try her out and him out. I want to see if this marriage thing works before we commit to each other you know so let's do it that way because face it everyone else is doing that or um you know everyone else says homosexuality must be okay if you feel you're born that way so it must be morally okay because blah 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 you know i mean there's a lot of i could go on and on and on with different topics from the culture and the world in which if we're not careful you know we think wait a minute god's grace forgives therefore it doesn't matter what i do no, what you do matters a lot, and we'll see that all through Scripture, that as God's children uh, step out of line and commit sin and, are, and, 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 and go off away from Him, there are always negative, painful consequences that flow out of sin. You know, So don't be deceived in thinking that just because God is a grace-filled, forgiving God, that He doesn't also expect His children to honor and respect and follow Him, 
uh, or else you're going to be you're going to you're going to miss a lot of the blessing God wants to pour on your life. So wait a minute, Dale, but I can't earn God's grace. True or false? True. But the, does sinful choices uh, put a block into what full blessing you will experience? True. So just because you don't earn God's grace doesn't mean that, you know, grace is there to motivate us toward holiness, not to blow off God and live as if, oh, well, he'll just forgive it. Which leads to my next point. And that is that sin offers more than it can deliver and costs you more than you expect to pay. See, this is truth this morning. And it's modeled in this story of the Gibeonites. Sin always flirts with you saying, I'll give you an easier shortcut to some area of joy you want in your life. But as it does, it never tells you the truth. But just be aware that down the road in life, this, is, this will be the consequences. God's word is truth. And it's designed to deliver life to us. So choose life. Choose obedience. Choose the word of God. Which leads to my next point. And that is that there is wisdom in the counsel of God and godly counsel. And see, they didn't seek either. They trusted their own research. They did their homework, but they got fooled. They got tricked by the, by the world. You know, and, and here's the deal. God's word is our number one counselor. We see it all in, 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 um, uh, go home this week and, and when you, if you, some of the life groups do a follow-up study on the sermon. Not all of them, but some of them do. If you do, make sure before that study you read Psalm 119 or all of you as you reflect further on the message. Psalm 119 talks about the value of the Word of God. And here is just some highlights from just... I picked six verses out of Psalm 119. And here's what they teach. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. They give me more insight than all my teachers. They help me understand more than even the aged. They help me to keep your Word... Your precepts give me understanding, and therefore they teach me to hate every false way. Now those are just, that's just in six verses out of the longest psalm in the Bible, which is about the value of the Word of God. So, so let the Word of God provide a filter. It's why we study the Word here so much. It's why I love to teach the full concepts of Scripture and not just one topic every week. Because I want you to be grounded in the wisdom of God's Word so when the world brings a message into your mind or your life, it, something kind of sets off an alarm and you go, whoa, that's not, that doesn't line up with God's Word. And you back off and don't get tricked by the world. And then last but not least, there's wisdom in many counselors. Man, there's wisdom in many counselors. Proverbs 15.22 says, Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many godly counselors, they succeed. See, the wisdom of Scripture is have people around you in your life that you can learn from and, 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 and consult with whenever you have a tough decision and you're not sure what God's Word teaches. Number one, know God's Word yourself, but then number two, surround you, yourself with people that are wise in the Word. Get the right advice from the right kind of people. 
By the way, that's why we're doing two things right now at Seacoast. One is we're teaching a thing called the Foundations of Christian Belief. It's, it's at 9 o'clock. You can get in on it next week. It's going to run for four weeks in the cafe. And we're going to be grounding our people deeper in the wisdom of Scripture concerning a solid theology of the faith. Consider coming at 9 o'clock and then come and worship at 1045. Okay? Promise me. Don't do that. Okay? Secondly, we're also doing life groups. Because it's in the life group that you're able to bounce this tough stuff around with and say, you know, what do you think God's Word teaches on this and that? And this is what I'm facing in life. And someone help me live with wisdom. So you need to surround yourself in a life group with a few other good people that are trying to figure it out together. Because none of us have all this wisdom. I don't have it. We need to be in the Word together. So today, sign up for a life group today. Last but not least, don't put your trust in ungodly alliances. Wow, what a warning there. Isaiah 31 says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely upon their horses and trust in their chariots and in the horsemen because they're very strong. But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Isaiah 31. See, Israel thought they'd be more secure if they signed the deal. So this week, as we wrap up, don't get tricked by the evil one and the lies of his culture. Be wise. Be strong in the Lord. Put your total trust in Christ. Abide in Him. But in addition to that, make sure that you are not just strong. You are wise. Let's pray together as the band comes to lead us into communion. Let's pray. Father God, as we, uh, as we shift our focus in worship now to the Lord's table, as we invite those in the room that have placed their faith in Christ to partake with us, we pray, Father, that as we sit and pray and listen and we hold the bread that reminds us of the body of Jesus, and we hold this little cup that reminds us of the blood of Christ shed for us on the cross. Father, remind us that this is where wisdom begins. The wisdom begins in knowing who we are and the fact that without Christ we have no hope, but also knowing that He bled and died on a cross. He paid the punishment for our sins, and He's alive today. So we share your body, your blood. Use this time of worship to draw us back to the foundational truth of living in your grace, living in the wonderful good news of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.